Well, tonight we're going to explore the seven bowls of wrath. You thought last week was rough. Well, <laughs> Uh, that was a prelude to chapters 15 and 16 tonight. Revelation, chapter 15 and 16. We've uh, been through a lot of heavy chapters, but it's coming to a climax. Chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, but it really serves as an introduction or prelude to chapter 16. And the primary subject we'll be addressing are the seven bowls. Most people who have even the, just the briefest perspective of the book of Revelation recognize that there are lots of sevens. There were the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then as we uh, get transported before into the supreme headquarters of the universe, heaven itself, uh, we uh, saw the drama with the seven-sealed book as those seven seals are opened. Then we saw the seven trumpets. And now we have the seven bowls. There are many more sevens. There's probably over a hundred groups of sevens in the book of Revelation. And every time I start to count them, there's just, you discover more and more. Some of them are very subtle. Some are very conspicuous. But in any case, the seals, trumpets, and bowls constitute, uh, in broadest outline, uh, major elements of the book. So we're coming to the, the final closing chapters of the book. We're moving to the primary climax. Uh, this climaxes this strange seven-year period that is known as the 70th week of Daniel. The seven-year period taking its uh, primary definition from Daniel chapter 9, last four verses. That seven-year period is divided into two halves. The last half of that seven-year period, the last three and a half years, the Lord Jesus Christ himself labels, calls it the Great Tribulation, quoting it from Daniel chapter 12, frankly. While there are many uh, scholars have slightly different views as to where some of these other things fit together, clearly these seven bowls of wrath we're going to deal with pour out, they climax the seven-year period, just prior to God setting up his kingdom on the planet Earth. And so uh, let's just jump in at chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. I want you to draw a distinction as you study your scripture between the judgment of God and the wrath of God. There have been many judgments of God throughout the history. God used Babylon to judge Israel and so forth. But the wrath of God is a very reserved term, and that's what we're going to see forthcoming here. And uh, this term wrath was introduced as early as chapter 6. And, of course, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 also deals with it in the, uh, Peter in the second epistle. The verse opens up another sign. This seems to connect this series, in a sense, with chapter 12. If you recall, we, um, in chapter 12 we saw another sign in heaven. We were introduced to a series of personages, the woman, the man-child, etc., finally, and, and the two beasts of Revelation 13. Another sign is another series, if you will. Now, one of the things I have not tried to spend a lot of time on charts and diagrams, because most of them I have seen uh, fail uh, in a number of ways, the easiest way to address the book is to treat all these as sequential. Deviations from that usually fall into all kinds of error. So as a first going in position, I encourage you just to view these things all as a series. Most of the, the serious scholars treat it that way. But having said that, I do want to make you aware of certain patterns that are, uh, you observe in the Scripture. And uh, what I'll call, for lack of another term, the recapitulation style of presentation. 
best example that pops in my mind is Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 is the creation. It goes through the, the uh, six days, and then he rests. Chapter 2 goes back and gives you more detail about the creation of man, specifically. The Scripture does that again and again and again. The law was given in the book of Exodus, and yet we have a recap of sorts in Deuteronomy. We look at the gospel accounts. We've got, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They obviously overlap. They all present from a different vantage point, of course, the life of Christ. So recognize it's very common in the Scripture to have a big overview and then more precision. We sort of saw that last week. Chapter 14 was like a table of contents to the remainder of the book, and we reviewed that. One of the things that becomes very clear is that there is an interesting, provocative, and yet uh, uh, disturbing parallelism between these seven bowls and the seven trumpet judgments of Revelation chapter 8 and 9. They're not the same thing. There's some very distinctive differences. These are far more intense and far more comprehensive on the one hand. On the other hand, I encourage you, I won't take a lot of time tonight to get into fancy charts or something, but to, to make your own chart. If you're seriously studying the book, lay out the seven trumpets of chapter 7 and 8 in what you have the details, and then take the seven bowls and lay them side by side. You'll discover that they almost, in some very remarkable ways, are very parallel. The bowls, of course, being far more intense and far more pervasive. Now, by the way, a textual problem where it says, For in them, I saw another sign of heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The actual text, the original text implies was it's filled up in the sense it was finished. In other words, there's a sense of completeness about this. In fact, before we jump into this, I might remind you of Psalm 110, verse 1. And to bring it home, let's t- I would like to have you take a look at that. You hear it quoted a great deal, but Psalm 110, verse 1, is a promise given to the Lord Jesus. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make mine enemies thy footstool. You may remember that Jesus used this verse to confound the Pharisees. He raised the whole issue of David. You know, how can the Messiah be the son of David and yet David call him Lord was sort of the paradox that Jesus laid on the Pharisees. And after, and after that they stopped asking him questions. But the, but the main point is here, he says to the Lord Jesus, Sit thou at my right hand until I make mine enemies thy footstool. Where is Jesus Christ sitting as we speak? The right hand of the Father. How long does he sit at the right hand of the Father? You should do a study sometime of the untils in the Scripture. There's a milestone. Until what? I make uh, mine enemies thy footstool. So there's an event that's going to occur that will prepare the way for Jesus to take charge. Meantime, he's he's, uh, sitting on his Father's throne. Now... What is that event? The pouring out of these seven bowls of wrath. God pouring out his wrath on the earth. Let's go verse 2. And I saw, John says, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. Notice it as it were. He uses that phrase when it's a symbol or an idiom. 
not necessarily, you know, obviously not necessarily literal. But in any case, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now, the sea of glass, you may recall, we encountered when we first saw the throne of God in chapters 4 and 5. We saw a possible parallel between that sea of glass and the so-called molten sea, or the the laver, if you will, in the tabernacle or the temple. In the Old Testament, the priests washed in it, and we saw it from Ephesians, uh, the washing of the water by the Word. That idiom used of the Word of God, the laver being the Word of God. It's interesting, there in in chapter uh, 4, we saw the 24 elders standing on it. And it sounds like a pun, I believe it is. I'm not being flippant. I think that uh, right now we wash in it, then we'll be standing on it. What are we talking about? What's the idiom? The Word of God. But here we see this sea of glass uh, mingled with fire. Judgment is coming. This is, uh, as, uh, as you watch the special effects department, you can tell that something big is about to happen. Then it goes on to point out who the targets are here. Saw the sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over, and all these things are going to be targets shortly. Those who had gotten victory over the beast, his image, his mark, and his number of his name. The ones that had gotten victory are standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And by the way, they're standing on it, not beside it. The NIV has beside it. That's, uh, that is an allowable translation preposition, but it isn't the structure that's uh, consistent with the context. It's interesting that these that have had victory over the beast are martyrs. They're now in heaven. The world viewed them as losers. They were captured, reviled, persecuted, hated. What the beast and his minions were doing unknowingly was just creating a shuttle service to heaven. Because as these stood for the living God and get martyred, they now are in heaven to watch the big climax. One of the things we should really be alert to, and that is that perhaps the most pervasive human defect that you and I are victims of is our stubborn insistence that our perceptions and illusions should be uh, taken as objective reality. We tend to presume that our perceptions and, and illusions are the real objective reality. That's certainly true in terms of the world here in the context of this chapter who are uh, killing these people, the martyrs that that, uh, have taken the mark of the beast and all of that. And yet they, of course, are actually the victors here presented. The application that's more relevant to you and I is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We looked at the seven churches. It was interesting that each of the seven churches had a misperception of their own standing. Very sobering insight. Those seven churches represent all churches. What's interesting is virtually every one of the seven churches had a perception of themselves that was not accurate. Many of them had a perception better than they really were entitled to. Some had a perception less than they were entitled to. But the provocative uh, insight is they were, all of them, had misperceptions. Boy, how that should humble us as we uh, smugly hide in the comfort of our presumptions. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. 
or king of the ages is the way it is in, uh, in uh, Jeremiah 40, verse 10, same kind of a phrase, or 1 Timothy 1.17. The song of Moses, you encounter that in Exodus 15, the first 21 verses, also chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Many people say, well, it doesn't apply to us. That was the song of Moses that applies to Israel, and certainly it does. But I want to point out to you the song of Moses was sung before the giving of the law. The giving of the law was in chapter 19. It was sung in chapter 15. So don't use that as a to duck it completely. But it also includes here two songs, the first and last. The first song was a song of Moses from Exodus 15. The last song was a song of the Lamb. We saw that in chapter 5 of Revelation. You can review your notes where they did that. It's interesting that in these praises and in these songs, there's never any word of the martyr's achievements. The pronouns always just refer to God. There's a real lesson there for us all too, isn't it? All, these, all this uh, uh, exaltation. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of the saints. One thing we want to remember, and it's probably most important to remember as we go through these fairly heavy chapters. The last few chapters and, uh, have been pretty heavy judgments and wrath and so forth. Remember that the book of Revelation is unveiling not judgments and wrath. It's unveiling Jesus Christ. The name of the book is the apocalypse, the unveiling of what? Jesus Christ. It's singular. When someone says the book of Revelations, plural, you know he hasn't studied it carefully. It's a singular, the first sentence in the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, unto whom? Unto Jesus Christ. So remember, the book is Christocentric. All these other issues are incidental, in effect, to revealing who Jesus Christ really is. So don't get overly distracted with the four horsemen and the trumpets and, and these bowls we're about to encounter. Remember who is being unveiled in this book, and it's a singular person. Ancient manuscripts have three different renderings of this king of saints or king of nations or king of the ages, but I won't badger that right now. Verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord? You know, as you study these things, you can't help but stand back and try to take a look at where we are today. There is less fear of God in our society today than ever before in history. Whatever else may be true, you know, it's interesting as you look back at our country the last several decades, or look even deeper, as you look deeper into history, as we tend to do around Thanksgiving or certain those occasions when we sort of recount our heritage. Uh, they certainly weren't free of problems, but boy, they sure had a uh, belief in God. It was a socially, uh, uh, not only socially acceptable, it was socially unacceptable not to. And admittedly, I'm sure there was a lot of hypocrisy and problems. And at the same time, the culture, though, uh, that we came from was a God-honoring culture. It's interesting to watch as the decades continue that decline. And has it ever been lower than it is today? This idea of fearing God is, uh, uh, sounds like an anachronism in our vocabulary. You don't find people talking that way. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord? There's very little reverence of God, even among believers. We, in our, in our intimacy with him, and, and, and I applaud the, the, the warmth and the affection and these, the, the intimacy that we express in our worship on the one hand, but even um, there's, a, there's also a place for reverence, awe, remembering who he really is. 
And much of what we're going to study about in this chapter really doesn't apply to us because the church will be out of here. This is a, this is a climax of a period that's um, post-church. And yet, I do think there's a value in what we're going to look at because if nothing else, it should remind us who we're dealing with. So anyway, let's move on. It says here that the, all nations shall come and worship before thee. <laughs> there aren't any that do that today. Certainly we don't. It's interesting that even Israel, with all its blessings, doesn't take its own scriptures seriously. That's, I think, fascinating. Even those that are ultra-Orthodox take the commentaries more seriously than they do their own scriptures. And, of course, the immorality, the godlessness, the injustice is uh, increasingly conspicuous in our own country. Now, this judgment um, is going to proceed out of God's holiness. And uh, verse 5, After that I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Temple is mentioned 15 times in this book. It's never mentioned until chapter 4. It's never mentioned while the church is on the earth. But when, after the church is removed, from then on, God is dealing with the people who have had a temple, of the, a replica of things in heaven. Now, as we talk about this, uh, this is the temple comes up so often. I think it's worth our reminding ourselves of some fundamentals. Turn with me to Exodus 25. Exodus chapter 25. We, of course, know about the tabernacle in Israel, this portable sanctuary that they were instructed to build. And in Exodus, we, uh, we have, I always joke, I always say that uh, when Charlton Heston came down from Mount Sinai, he should, have had two, he, had two, he should have had two tables of stone under one arm and a set of blueprints under the other. Because he not only got the Ten Commandments up there, he also got the specifications for the, of, of this very specialized portable sanctuary called the tabernacle. And all these details are laid out precisely in Exodus, and then later on when he builds it, they're laid out again. But the thing, uh, uh, after it goes through all of this, the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, all the details, you get to verse 40. And I want you to notice verse 40. It's key insight. God is speaking to Moses and says, See that thou make them after their pattern, which was shown thee in the mount. These things were shown to Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. So what he ended up building down after he came off the mountain were replicas of that which he'd seen. Many people get confused by that. They see the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 11 of Revelation. They think that's the Ark from the Old Testament. I don't think so. I think that's the Ark from which it was copied, if you will. The real one is in heaven. And uh, you might turn with me to Hebrews, chapter 9. And each of these little departures could be a whole in-depth study. Uh, but I just want to touch on enough so that you can pick up the ball and run with it yourself. In chapter 9, there's a commentary on the Old Testament covenants and types and the sacrifices and so forth. And as you go through this, you'll discover that there is a the, th the thing you and I experience as reality is a simulation. You and I live in an illusion. If I say this podium here is solid, because I hit it, it seems solid to you and I. If one of you took a dissenting view and says, no, it's not solid, the person who took that view is more accurate by a factor of one part in ten to the million, more than a million, than I am. In other words, this appears solid because of an electrical simulation. It's not really, it's mostly empty space. You do a model of the atom, you discover it's mostly empty space. But it appears solid because of the electrical interactions 
between the atoms of one material and another. The point is you and I live in an, in an, actually in, in an illusion. The particle physicists are grappling with this today. They believe they've come to the boundary of reality. They discover that not only is everything made up of particles, they've also discovered, the, much to their dis, uh, concern, it's a very disturbing conclusion, is that all particles of all atoms throughout the universe are immediately connected. And there's no way to explain that, but you can prove it quite clearly. They've spent a lot of money trying to disprove that. And the more they do it, the more they're convinced it's true. There is no lo such thing as local reality. And I won't get into that. That's a whole particle physics thing. But the point is some disturbing insights. Now, the point is, the book of Hebrews says that all along. The real reality is elsewhere. These things that we deal with, the tabernacle, the ark, are replicas. And uh, let's just pick up one verse. Let's just go to verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says it was, Therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, the sacrifices that we see in, the, he's speaking of the Old Testament sacrifice, are but signs and symbols and, and of, of, of the real reality. And the, the, the real reality was when Jesus Christ presented his blood uh, before the throne of God. Anyway, down to verse 6, back to Revelation 15. Didn't depart long. We'll get right back there. The seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues. They were clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Very familiar livery, as we've noticed in Revelation. Very common type of vestment we've seen before in the book. But one small point. Clothed with linen. The variant reading of the Greek and also reads it as if they're clothed with precious stones. Again, if you're doing special effects, you can visualize this as brilliant light, what have you. But in any case, verse 7, And one of the four beasts, four living creatures to be more precise, one of the cherubim, if you will, gave unto the... Uh, the word beast, unfortunately, I, I try to always correct that. That's not the word uh, therion that's the beast. It's uh, the zoa, the, the living creatures, living things. Uh, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, or bowls, full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Now, the word vile in the King James is a little misleading. You and I, when we think of a vile, visualize something uh, tall and narrow, uh, deeper than it is wide. Uh, the term here, it, it, it's believed to be like a, 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 the type of vessels that were used in the temple. They're more like a saucer, or, a, or that's why I use the term bowl. It's a little closer in our vocabulary. It's a more of a, a large, shallow vessel. Carrying these, uh, carrying the, used as the idiom here for the wrath of God. These were prevalent in the temple, used for worship. Verse 8 And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now, we've talked about the smoke last time. We talked about the Shekinah, the, the, uh, the glory, the pillar of uh, uh, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night in the Old Testament. And the, how frequently it appears, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. We went through all that last time. It should be in your notes. It's interesting that when, this, when, when, they get, when they get ready to pour out the wrath of God, uh, no one was able to enter the temple. The smoke, of course, is similar to Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the throne of God, we saw it there. It's interesting that in Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13, Aaron, on, the, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, had to carry a, a censer of coals ahead of him through the smoke, that he die not. 
In other words, in the, even in the tabernacle context, it was fatal uh, to uh, try to uh, <clears throat> fight the system here. It's interesting that as God pours out his wrath, even the redeemed are denied access. It appears that God suffers alone for the horror of sin. Now we're going to, obviously, what's going to unfold here in chapter 16 is one by one these bowls are poured out on various uh, specific things. And again, seven, just like the seven churches, is, a, is, a, is an idiom of completeness. The seven churches were the complete history of the church and so forth. These sevens here can also include some parallelism. You remember the seven churches were sequential but also overlapping, with the, with the last four, of course, enduring right up to the end. Again, these seven climax, but uh, uh, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, if you will. Now, by the way, these seven angels, with these seven bowls, the idiom here makes it clear that these proceed from God, not man's mistakes or Satan's enmity. We've dealt with those, with the seals and with the trumpets. These are specific pouring out of God's wrath as we go here, the wrath of the Lamb of God. And I still have to someday get hold of, make a bumper sticker. Beware the Lamb. You don't think of a lamb as thing, but I think it's a paradox that's provocative. Chapter 16. Now, by the way, as we go here, I'll mention as we go, you will also profit by doing a careful study of the plagues of Egypt. And there were ten plagues, including the, the, the death of the firstborn. There were nine, three groups of three each prior to that. Uh, with the tape, there will be notes and charts and all that. We talked about that before. I won't repeat it here. But just recognize that these bowls, they're called plagues in chapter 15. There's also uh, some provocative parallels between the plagues that are poured out in chapter 16 and the plagues that uh, uh, God called down upon Egypt in the days of, the, of uh, their deliverance, or the exodus. Chapter 16, verse 1, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So uh, verse 2 uh, is, of course, the first bowl. The first went, poured out his bowl upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. These sores on the beast worshippers is very similar to the sixth plague in Egypt. If you remember, they had sores and boils and so forth. That's in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. But it's interesting, these sores are typically an outward sign of an inward corruption. When you have boils or problems that are external, they're usually a symptom of something deeper that's wrong. And it could very well be that that's exactly the thought that's behind all this too. In any case, don't misunderstand me, I'm not implying that these are not literal. Now, many uh, the libraries are full of experts who argue about whether these should be taken literally or figuratively. And I'll tell you what I believe the answer is. That's it's probably both. I see no reason not to take them literally, especially since the language is so reflective of uh, the, the plagues in Exodus. And yet, at the same time, it's easy to see that these might go much, much deeper. But it might be interesting. I won't go back to the Exodus plague of Exodus nine. Let's go to Deuteronomy 
there's an interesting prophecy that is unfulfilled so far, I believe, in Deuteronomy 28. It talks about things that bring a blessing, things that bring a curse in that chapter. When they fail to uh, uh, do what God tells them to do, there's a whole bunch of curses later in the chapter. Let's just pick up a couple of verses. Verse 27. The Lord will smite thee with the boil of Egypt and with the tumors and with the scab and with the itch whereas thou canst not be healed. In other words, these are incurable. These are incurable plagues prophesied in, in Deuteronomy 28. And pick, uh, let's skip down to verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore boil that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. And goes on. Bear in mind, in Revelation chapter 16, who are these sores falling upon? Those that are worshiping the beast. Remember, Moses told me uh, not to make any graven images. And this is the ultimate violation of that, this, the, the, this expressly prohibited image that they're worshiping here uh, that was described in Revelation 13. And here, uh, uh, the men who had taken that mark are now inheriting a uh, uh, source. Some prophecy writers speculate that if this thing is a chip that they put under the skin, that maybe it gets infected or something. That could well be, but I think a lot of that misses the real thrust of the passage. You're really talking about uh, uh, devil worship when you talk about uh, worshiping any idol. The scripture tells us that if you worship an idol, it's not a harmless superstition. You're, you're uh, dealing with demons. And in this particular case, Satan himself. I think it's provocative as we read about these uh, uh, things that we uh, are experiencing in our own culture not only the AIDS situation, in which we have a rapidly mutating virus that defies vaccines and what have you. We're also discovering, which is just as horrifying, that the old diseases we thought we'd licked are coming back with uh, resistant strains to the antibiotics that we've been so broadly using. So the whole field of immunology is, has, a, has a major panic going on, as uh, not only are these new viruses, whether it's AIDS or Ebola or whatever, uh, showing up, but uh, even some of the old stuff is showing with unusually resistant strains. So that uh, whole area is uh, getting uh, pretty hairy. And I, I commend to you, uh, you can look at the, uh, the sixth plague in uh, uh, Exodus 9 at your leisure and also read in detail the whole uh, passage of Deuteronomy 28 to get a flavor of that as, as it would be seen from the Torah. Moving on to verse 3. Let's go to the next bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl or vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Now, is this literal, or is it a figurative idiom? Well, if you look at Psalm 105.29, or Leviticus 17.11, or the first, play, the first plague in the series uh, that led to the Exodus, that's in Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 through 25, that's very literal. That was very literal. So frankly, there's no reason not to take this literally. Now, as a practical matter, there have been, in a number of bodies of water that are sheltered by land to some extent, occasionally there's a thing called the red tide. 
It's actually not blood. What it actually is, it looks like blood, but what it actually is, certain, under certain conditions, these microorganisms multiply to do an extreme, create what they call the red tide, and all sea life in that region dies. The very, very serious blights, and they're, they're, there's a you know, substantial history of these if you study oceanography and what have you. But also, this kind of ecological imbalance we've witnessed in recent years, you all remember the Exxon Valdez situation with that, that the disaster, that's oil spill. Also the Persian Gulf, the, deri- the deliberate spill uh, uh, created by the Iraqis in, in 1991 and all of that. So some kind of imbalance in the oceans is, is obviously not uh, hard for us to visualize. Third bowl is very similar. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. It's kind of interesting to me to stand back. All of this apparently is aimed at the beast worshippers. And uh, they're the ones that have been taking the blood of the martyrs. Because of, from, remember in chapter uh, 6 onwards, they have the, uh, the fifth seal. Had the martyrs under the altars and so forth. The, the, the blood, bloody um, era in which the beast worshippers are taking it out on those that refuse to worship the beast. It's a bloody thing. It's interesting that they now find themselves with God's wrath being poured out where they can't find anything to drink but blood. This, of course, the other thing I'm sure you're uh, picking up on too in Exodus 7, this is also uh, similar to the plagues that God uh, had Moses um, declare on Egypt. Verse 5, continuing, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. First of all, it's interesting, there's apparently an angel of the waters. That phrase struck me. Uh, My friend Lambert Dolphin, who's a, a consulting physicist and also very knowledgeable in the Scripture, he has had the view for many years that there are angels assigned to specific administration to keep the universe running. And most of us, because we come from a naturalistic scientific background, if you're into that at all, you tend to look at these things as as, um, deterministic somehow. And the truth of the matter is you can build a a scriptural case that there are angels assigned to various roles, if you make a study of that. Well, here's one case where we have an angel of the waters, and we can just only speculate as to what that all may mean. But in any case... This angel of the water says, Thou art righteous, O Lord. All the way through here, we're going to discover again and again and again and again and again the reaffirmation that these that God is righteous, that these things are justified. And uh, that may strike us strange, because as we get hit with all of this, we sometimes say, Whoa, how can this be? It seems, it seems so heavy. And one of the things that, uh, in, in one respect, we take on faith, and the other thing is, it's a way to illuminate what's really going on, is that God is righteous. These things are justified. Thou art righteous, O Lord. Now, your English translation, the King James says, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. The Greek actually leaves out and shall be. That's what was added by the translators. That's the way we always see it. God who was and who is and ever shall be. That's always the... The, the way it's expressed, past, present, and future in the verb tense or, or whatever. In this case, it's, in, it's uh, been added by the translators. It actually reads, uh, the existing one, the one who was, the holy one, period. And as one uh, commentator points out, <laughs> that there is no point in speaking of the one that shall come to these people. 
in the context of this. It's kind of interesting, because the one has come is here, see? Anyway, verse 6, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. In other words, we have the blood poured out in uh, these last two vials, or bowls. This angel qualitatively comments on what's going on here. Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. In other words, there's a retribution implied here. Not just a judgment, but it's in judgment in kind. For why? Because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. The way we summarize that in our, in our street proverbs is what goes around comes around. And that's exactly what God is dealing with them here in these first bowls. Verse 7, And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. It's in, uh, and, of course, the altar speaks of the cross, as you know, and this also echoes the fifth seal uh, in Revelation chapter 6. Remember, that altar was the shelter of the martyrs. Remember, they were under the altar. That the altar was sheltering them. Now, as you study the seven bowls, you'll discover the first three seem to be aimed at men dwelling on the earth. The last four, you'll discover, are in one way or another linked to Babylon. Babylon is introduced to us uh, in an earlier reference, chapter 14, verse 8, I believe dealt with it. It's going to be this, the focus of the next two chapters after this one, chapter 17 and 18. Whatever Babylon is, it's obviously very important. Is it just an ancient city? Is it much more than that? It's obviously much more than that because it has a very, very major uh, portion of the book of Revelation. And we will, of course, be dealing with it in depth next time, but it's starting to surface right here as this uh, unfolds here. Even with verse 8, not obviously, let me explain what I mean. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl, or vial, upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Now, as you talk about the sun, some historical background might be useful. Sun worship is the earliest form of paganism. It had its beginning on the plain of Shinar. And um, all other paganism derives from it. This all goes back to Nimrod. You read some very uh, small references to Nimrod in Genesis 10. The word Nimrod comes from the Hebrew word Marad, which means to rebel. It's in the future tense there. The word Nimrod means we will rebel. That's what, the, what his name was. He was the first dictator on the planet Earth. And those of you that are interested in race relations, many experts believe he was colored. So the first dictator on the planet Earth may have been a Negro. But in any case, Genesis 10, verses 8, uh, verses 8 through 10, it says that... Um, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but that's a mistranslation, a misleading translation. The word before should be in defiance of the Lord. He was the first world dictator. To give you some quotes from this, in Josephus, he says that Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that his own excellency was the source of it. He soon changed things into a tyranny, thinking that there was no other way to wean men from the fear of God than by making them rely upon his own power. The Targum of Jonathan, from the foundation of the world, none was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and in rebellions against the Lord. The Jerusalem Targum, quote, He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was the hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. 
There is, uh, as it said, Nimrod is the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. The Chaldean paraphrase of 1 Chronicles 1.10, Cush begot Nimrod, who began to prevail in wickedness, for he shed innocent blood and rebelled against Jehovah, or Yahweh, as you will. See, the sun was first worshipped by Nimrod and his followers on the plains of Shinar. And they built the first temple to all of this, called Babel, the tower to God. And in your English translation, it says it was a tower to reach unto heaven. It was a tower unto heaven. It was a way of worshiping the hosts of heaven. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next time, but I want you to get this background here. All paganism derived from this beginning. And this is one reason, by the way, that all pagan myths have a parallelism. It's interesting, if you study the signs of the zodiac in all the different cultures non-Hebrew cultures, you'll discover they have the same names or same legends associated with them. That tells you nothing more than a, a common origin. What is the common origin? Genesis 11. Is that where it originated? No. We discover that the Matzeroth, that is the Hebrew names of those constellations, as exemplified by the names of the, the Hebrew names of those stars in the order of brightness of each constellation, lays out the plan of God from the virgin birth that we call Virgo all the way to the lion of the tribe of Judah that we happen to call Leo. But the point is that profile of what's in the Hebrew is called the Matzeroth is a provocative study. Not all the pieces fit uh, perfectly uh, yet, but uh, as, we've discovered, uh, as you discover the Hebrew names and fit it together, it's, it's very provocative. All of that gets corrupted into a pagan form when under Nimrod, Genesis 10 and 11 and all of that, and, and leaves us with what you and I know as the Zodiac. Fifteen degrees either side of the ecliptic, we have these particular constellations that have legends associated with them. Those legends are pagan corruptions of what apparently was um, a, a mnemonic by which uh, Adam, Seth, whoever, taught their kids the plan of God way back early. We, incidentally, if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, we have a separate briefing on that called The Signs in the Heavens, which goes through all that. It's, I think, on video as well as audio, if you like. And we also, this gets amplified to some extent by our briefing package called Monuments, Sacred and Profane, which gets into not just the sun worship so much, but also Mars, the planet Mars, uh, known in the Old Testament as Baal. The worship of uh, Mars, which is, of course, the Latin name or the Roman name, God of War. Why is it that those ancient cultures were terrified of the planets? Because of astrology? No, hardly. It's because those they interfered with their lives. And the synchronous orbit of Mars and the Earth apparently led to some very peculiar events of the past, and, and uh, we get into that in great depth when we talk about the long day of Joshua, for those of you who want to get into some of that. But it's interesting that the Great Pyramid is not where the other pyramids are, it's in Cairo. What is Cairo? That's the Arabic word for Mars. And there's some strange relationships, apparently, between Stonehenge in England and you know, the Great Pyramid in Giza, which is probably not an Egyptian pyramid. It predated those, and it has some peculiarities. So many people, many of the New Agers make a big thing of that. And I, uh, we, have, we try to deal with some of that and the face that's on Mars, try to tie it together as possibly, possibly, a prelude to the big lie that's forthcoming that Paul promises in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Anyway, all this seems to circulate not only around the planet Mars, but around Babylon. All this has its origin in Babylon. In fact, uh, to uh, touch on this a little bit, let's turn to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We have a recounting of various elements of the law. 
And one of the injunctions or prohibitions of the book of Deuteronomy uh, is, focuses on what we're talking about in verse 19, Deuteronomy 4.19. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun, the moon, and the stars, and even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided into all nations under the whole of heaven. And it goes on. In other words, there again, expressly prohibited is the worship. Sun, moon, stars, what have you. Expressly prohibited is the worship. Sun, moon, stars, what have you. And that's, of course, what they indulged in. You'll find the the same theme picked up in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 and 3. And also 2 Kings 17. And we won't go track all these down. That's just to give you a flavor. Let's go back to Revelation 16. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. The power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Nine picks continuing. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. This is really strange. Men on the planet Earth are suffering rather dramatic things. This is not something subtle. We've got the sun increasing in heat creating major problems on the planet Earth. From verse 9, it would appear that men recognize that this is from God, and instead of repenting, they blaspheme God. They curse God. Dumb. Really dumb. It's really surprising to see how often this event is prophesied in the Scripture. We'll just take a quick tour. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32. Many people try to make these figurative. They try to say, well, this is symbolic, and they have some contrived explanation. I have trouble with that because, if for no other reason, it's repetitive allusions here. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, and I'm just going to, you really need to read the whole passage, but in the interest of time, I'll just extract a few verses to give you a flavor, a sampling. Verse 22, and a fire is kindled in mine anger, and and shall burn unto the lowest Sheol, or grave. And shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Wow. Okay, let's, uh, uh, in verse 24, And they shall burn with hunger and devoured with a burning heat and bitter destruction, and I will also send the teeth of the beasts upon them and the poison of serpents and the dust and so forth. You might pop over to um, Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. Some of you who have studied the book of Isaiah know it's divided uh, in two major parts. And uh, not that there's one Isaiah wrote it all, but Isaiah, the first 34, 35 chapters uh, deal with uh, uh, one kind of style and focus. But then there is a middle part, 36, 37, 38, and 39, those four chapters that are between the two major sections of Isaiah that are sometimes called the little apocalypse. The little apocalypse. And I encourage you to read chapters 36 through um, uh, 39 uh, as we study the book of Revelation. But for this particular excerpt, I'd like you to pop back to Isaiah 24, and we'll pick it up, oh, about verse 4. 
The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured all the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. And goes on. Now he says, yes, Old Testament. Uh, oh, we might, uh, on our way to the New Testament, we can stop off at Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, I believe it was, yeah. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn like an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then he goes on to talk about the son of righteousness. It's an interesting contrast there. S-U-N, of righteousness. Let's go to 2 Peter 3. Say so this is all Old Testament stuff. What about the, what about the New Testament? Now, Peter picks up on this theme in his second epistle. We pick it up, oh, let's say about, uh, he makes allusion to the flood. Uh, verse 6, by which the world was that then was, was overflowed with water and perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, verse 7, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. And Luke 21, 25, and so forth. Now, it's interesting, by the way, do you really get a respect for this if you've studied the anthropic principle? What scientists have discovered... It's, it's fascinating to me how they make these, they get these insights and they don't know what to do with them. They, they, as they try to model all that we know of the universe, the earth, the solar system, whatever, as they try to build a mathematical model to represent that which we know experientially, they discover that there are relationships that are incredibly delicate. To give you a trivial example, not trivial, but I mean just one exa- easily, easily visualizable example. If the earth was just a little bit closer to the sun, it would be too hot to sustain life. You couldn't have a water cycle. Some of the planets are 900 degrees. I mean, you get up there, you can't have the stability of elements that we take for granted. If the earth was a little further away from the sun, it's too cold. When you start analyzing that, you discover the range of choice is very narrow as they look at the distance of the earth to the sun, if they look at the size of the earth, if they look at the, its, its speed of rotation, you take almost any parameter of the earth and the sun, or even the moon. Which not, and some of these are not as obvious as others, so I won't get into all of this, but the point is, what they discover is the universe is very delicately balanced. Some of the parameters cannot be changed by even one part in 10,000. Now, that's a delicate adjustment. You encounter this kind of thing by the ecologists, where they say, gee, if the ozone was just a fraction of a percent different, comes cosmic doom. Turn that coin the other way around. If it's that delicately balanced, who balanced it? See, what you quickly discover, it's not one or two things, it's hundreds of these parameters are all delicately balanced. You can't find a better argument for the evidence of design, and thus a designer, than what the scientists call the anthropic principle. The term comes from the fact that they recognize it's as if the entire universe was designed for man. So they call it the anthropic principle. And Fred Hoyle is famous for actually having made scientific scientific predictions on that basis. He predicted energy levels in certain atoms uh, based on applying that principle. And when they looked, they found he was right. 
And uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an applied uh, scientific um, uh, method. But the point is, um, here we have what could be an adjustment there. Namely, we suddenly have an adjustment where the sun gets brighter or closer or whatever. There's suddenly excessive heat on the earth. Some people speculate that she, maybe the sun will become a nova. We notice stars sometimes will burn suddenly for apparently no reason. will get very, very much, you know, several, many times brighter, hotter, and then fizzle out. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, astrophysical theories about the birth and life cycle of stars. I won't get into all that here. But Albert Einstein made an interesting observation. He said, quote, it is easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. That wasn't your Sunday preacher. That was Albert Einstein, a physicist. I think it's interesting insight. Anyway, moving on. And by the way, if you're interested in this anthropic principle, we try to deal with that a little more uh, thoroughly in our briefing package called Beyond Coincidence, which tries to deal with, among other things, with the, the, the anthropic principle. Moving, the fifth bowl now, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl, or vial, upon the seat or throne of the beast. Or the, and, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. I think that's very literal. I have a hard time trying to spiritualize that. I'm sure darkness is also, there's also spiritual darkness. But it's, first of all, a couple of observations. This bowl is poured upon the throne of the beast. That causes me to conclude ever more so that this is a man. He's not a a thing or a force or something. No, it's it's a man. He has a throne. Now, it's kind of interesting. You may recall in Revelation 13, when we're talking about this beast or this, this leader, it says, who, uh, who is able to make war with him? Remember that rhetorical question. He's really powerful. Who can make war with him? Well, we're getting our answer here. God can and is and will. God is able to make war with him. Now, this plague of darkness is again something that's similar to an event that occurred in Exodus 9. Excuse me, Exodus 10. The ninth plague in Exodus 10, the ninth of the ten plagues, just prior to the death of the firstborn in, in the Exodus series, uh, was darkness. But if you read Exodus 10, verse 21, 22, and 23, this darkness was not just the absence of light. See, sometimes you and I suffer from having too much insight. You know, Generally, we think that darkness is the absence of light. And idiomatically, of course, it is spiritually. And yet... It's a little more complicated. In fact, in the book of Genesis, you may recall that uh, he separated the light from the darkness, remember? Which tells you the darkness there is not just the absence of light. In, in modern physics today, they talk about black holes. You can have so much mass that has so much gravity that light cannot escape. So you can actually have a kind of darkness that has other attributes also. But in this case, not to confuse you, in this case, this darkness might be the kind of darkness that some people infer occurred between the first two verses of Genesis. You may recall the, there's a theory called the gap theory. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, period. 28 letters, 7 words, can't rebut it. It's a comprehensive statement uh, that opens the book of Genesis. In verse 2, technically what it says, and the earth became without form and void. It's a transitive verb requiring an object. And the vav connective is a but, an adversative, not just and, but the earth became without form and void. In uh, Isaiah 45, 18, it points out, God says, I did not originally create it 
tohu v'bohur, without form and void. Which implies something happened between verse 1 and verse 2 that implies a judgment of some kind. It's just a hint in the grammar. But many serious scholars look at that with uh, uh, fascination. Because the other question that everybody puzzles over is when did Satan fall? Because he certainly has already fallen by the time you get to Genesis 3. So some people speculate. It's just a speculation, but it's a provocative one that has some support. And that is that Satan fell, and there was a judgment when he fell that destroyed some original situation. And what we see unraveled for us in... Uh, it says, uh, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the, but the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And that darkness might have been for eons, as Satan was unable to repair anything from the judgment. Until the Spirit of God brooded on the face of the waters. And God said, let light be. And, you know, that goes from there. Now, some very capable scholars believe that uh, that's a scenario that somehow something uh, spooky occurred between the first two verses. So-called gap theory. Many people misapply that and try to put dinosaurs or other things. They know it's got nothing to do with any of that. that that's a whole other issue. But in any case, we have here first scorched with fire, and then we have darkness, and if it's like the Exodus darkness, it's darkness that could be felt. And you'll find that this also is all through the Scripture. Isaiah 60, verse 2, Joel 2 makes reference to it, Nahum chapter 1, verse 8, and Mark 13, verses 24-25, that, that this darkness upon the earth is, is, a, is a repetitive theme throughout the Scripture. And by the way, there are commentators that have noted on May 19th of 1780 in 19 England, they had a day which was a dark day, and no one knows why. It wasn't eclipse, but it was a dark day that's a mystery in the, in, the, in the history books. March 19th of 1886, central Wisconsin went dark for 10 minutes. And again, this, these are unexplained darknesses. These aren't uh, normal eclipses and things. Memphis, Tennessee, December 1904. Louisville, Kentucky, March 1911, and some others. Very brief, but strange in the record. Uh, never been quite explained what happened in those regions on that particular day. May have nothing to do with it. I mentioned in passing. Now, this is one of those places where I do think, clearly, it is not only literal, I believe it is literal, but it also is spiritual. Clearly, there's darkness. And one of the things that really is disturbing me over this last year as I try to do my research and so forth is the spiritual darkness in our country. And what I mean by that, I don't simply mean uh, just an ignorance of Jesus Christ or the gospel. That's certainly true. Even in more fundamental terms, in a, a cultural war, the first casualty is truth. And it startles me to sit back and stop and think about how much of our lives are built upon lies, false, falsehoods. Example is evolution. The whole, as you study evolution, if you study it rationally, it makes no sense. It's easily disprovable. There's no evidence for it. There's lots of evidence disputing it. The DNA, among other things, demonstrates it's impossible. You can go through those studies and so forth. Evolution's absurd. And yet, okay, stand back and look at our culture, look at our world. The, 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 the premise of evolution underlies all our media, all our entertainment, our whole culture. How bizarre that is. It's not as if it's a view that there's controversy about. No, no, no. It's a sacred foundation to our culture. 
You are not even allowed to debate it in school. Strange. The field of psychology. There were, last year, some articles in some of the major news magazines discrediting you know, psychology in the publications, starting to have the fight for its life to some extent. Uh, I understand in the United Kingdom, the, uh, the government did a study trying to find one case where money spent in psychological therapy had beneficial effects and couldn't find any. I thought that's a fascinating report that I saw in the news back then. Psychology, of course, uh, with all its other frustrations, certainly is the language of the new age. It's the language through which we try to, to, to meddle in, in everyone's lives. But, but you go through and make a list of the um, premises of our society. And then, of course, you get to the more subtle issues, legalism. The mentality, even on the, among the unbelieving secular media, is that, gee, if you go to heaven because you're good. You, know, you have all the little jokes or the little entertainments or the little plays and movies uh, which, uh, you know, uh, somehow you earn your way to heaven by various mechanisms, usually with the tongue in the cheek to some extent. But still, the idiom that people sort of presume is that somehow uh, presence in heaven is a reward for how good you behaved on the earth, that mentality that, which is basically the premise of legalism. It's interesting to see these lies pervade our schools, our government, our media, organized misinformation. Talk about spiritual darkness. It's startling. You know, we think of spiritual darkness as, as Satanism and the occult and, the, you know, the really black stuff. No, hey, it's uh, <laughs> everywhere. Anyway, verse 11. Now they blasphemed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, repented not of their deeds. By the way, the God of heaven is an interesting title that occurs uh, uh, five times in chapter 2 of Daniel, among other partly anywhere else. But in any case, it's interesting that judgment doesn't ever bring repentance. See, our simplistic model would say, gee, you'd think that with enough of this heat on them, they would uh, uh, you know, wake up and, and say, gee, God, uh, we screwed up, we're sorry. No. It seems to polarize it evermore. They do not, they blaspheme, they do not repent. One of the lessons we're going to learn as we stand back from all these details, but I'll give it to you in advance, is that judgment does not produce repentance. Only grace and mercy does. There is a day when the wrath will be poured out, but then it's too late. Hey guys, it's over. Hey you guys down there, you had your chance. I mean, it's over. Because you notice, there's no repentance. Each time it mentions, they blaspheme God because of this or that and whatever, repented not of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Or kings of the rising sun is what it actually says. The river Euphrates is one of those interesting mysteries in the Bible. I encourage you to get a concordance and study it carefully. You'll find that the river Euphrates shows up 25 times in the Scripture. It was in Eden. Tigris and Euphrates are referred to there. And there is, it is there today. It may not be on its original course, of course, but the, the point is uh, Euphrates shows up again and again in ancient history and in, in the Scripture. And uh, it dries up to make way for a, 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 a situation here probably very analogous uh, to the Red Sea drying up so that Moses and Israel could cross it, or that the Jordan dried up so that Joshua and the nation could cross it. Euphrates is all tied up with both, the, it's the cradle of civilization, but it's also going to be the grave of the civil, civilization. And you'll find it in Zechariah 10 and Isaiah 11. It was the eastern boundary of Israel, Solomon's empire, 
And it was also uh, the land grant that Abraham, that God gave Abraham in Genesis 15:18. I love it when they talk about the West Bank. I love to ask them, which river are you talking about? Because Israel's destiny is to the West Bank of the Euphrates, not the Jordan. But anyway, it's about, it's about 1,800 miles long, typically 300 to 1,200 yards wide, about 30 feet deep, but often much wider and deeper depending on, on floods and things. You know, everybody has probably heard Rudyard Kipling's quote, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. But very few people have read the whole refrain. It comes from Rudyard Kipling's The Ballad of East and West. It reads as follows, O East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. Till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. See, Rudyard Kipling had done his homework. His idiom there uh, points to exactly what we're talking about here. Now, the Euphrates, even in 1991, in the Persian Gulf War, 30, armies of 30 countries pushed Saddam Hussein against it, against the Euphrates. The kings of the rising sun, by the way, is what it technically says. That's the classical way of referring to the uh, to east, if you will. And, uh, we'll, but we'll move on. Verse 13. And I saw, we'll talk more about the Euphrates because, uh, as it goes on here. But I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Three unclean spirits like frogs. This is uh, another echo, perhaps, of an unholy trinity idea. Frogs, you may recall, were the second of the plagues in Egypt. Exodus 8. Uh, just as locusts are idiomatic of demons, we notice in Revelation 9, you may recall, and, and got that insight from Amos 7.1 in the Septuagint version, etc. Uh, it's something strange when you study the, Egypt, the uh, plagues of Egypt. You may remember the plague of frogs. What may surprise you is the frogs responded to the magicians of Egypt. Most of us presume that those magicians were charlatans. If you do your homework and take the Bible seriously, you can quickly come to the conclusion that they did, in fact, possess supernatural demonic power, those magicians of Pharaoh. And the frogs did respond to them. Now, by the way, the lice did not, and that's when the priests got shook. Because the lice came later, and then the priests went to Pharaoh, and they were shook because they could not worship. If they had lice, they could not get rid of the lice. And that's when they told Pharaoh... Uh, the effect that uh, God is God. By the way, Aristophanes tells of a special costume worn in the Greek theater way back then called the Bactrachus, which is a frog garment. It was used as a sex symbol and it was used as a, as a, a lewd device in their plays, by the way, as an aside. Verse 14. These, these, three, these unclean spirits that are here mentioned are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to, to that battle of the great day of God Almighty. It's interesting that this Armageddon that we're leading up to is supernaturally inspired. That all the nations of the world are going to go to war. Against whom? Who are they going against? God Almighty. Where are they going to do this? In Israel. At a place called Megiddo. Armageddon. We now have had six bowls. You may recall... As, I, as we've learned now, from every time there's a sequence of seven, there's typically six, a break, and the seventh. In this case, where we've been through six, you'll discover that there's just a one-verse break. But verse 15 is sort of a shift of subject. 
It's sort of a breather. It's sort of a, if you're familiar with the pattern we've seen in the Revelation all the way through, we're not surprised to find it here. Verse 15 is sort of a, a word from our sponsor or something. Um, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. We've, we're familiar with this idea, behold, I come as a thief, aren't we? I want you to put in your notes 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. Because Paul makes a big point that that day will not overtake you as a thief. For you are children of the dark light, not the darkness. The day the Lord t- uh, overtakes them as a thief to those who are in darkness. That's the, I want you to read, uh, because we're running short of time, I won't do it right now. But ye are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And we get back to verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. That's not to the church then, is it? Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The word garments, we're familiar with in Scripture, because our righteousness are as filthy rags and so forth. It's interesting that the old English word habit refers to a manner of life. The French have adopted to refer to clothing. It's kind of interesting, though, you see the same root, uh, which captures that same idea. That, uh, yes, our garments are, uh, but it's also our, really our way of life. Anyway, verse 16. And that's the famous, famous verse, Revelation 16, 16. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Har Megiddo. Har is a mountain. Megiddo or Megiddo is a specific spot. Mount Megiddo is what it really is saying. But it's become an idiom, of course, in our language. And you'll find it mentioned in Zephaniah 3, 8, 2 Chronicles 35, 22, Zechariah 12, 11. Not by that name, but in, in, by other terms pointing to the same thing. Where is Megiddo? It's a literal place on the planet Earth. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. When we go to Israel, we almost all, not only go there, we usually have a special Bible study on that incredible vantage point up there, as you can look over the whole Jezreel Valley. This is where Jabin and his 900 chariots overwhelmed uh, their enemies, where Gideon's 300 defeated the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the east. This is where Samson triumphed over the Philistines. This is where Barak and Deborah defeated the, uh, uh, Caesarea. And this is where Saul was slain by the Philistines. As, this is where Ahaziah was slain by the arrows of Jehu, I believe. And where Pharaoh Necho ended up killing King Josiah. This is also in subsequent post-biblical times, the Saracens, the Christian Crusaders, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Druzes, the Turks, the Arabs, warriors of every nation, including Napoleon Bonaparte, when he had his disastrous march from Egypt to Syria. It has been a site of, it's, it's, it's a natural uh, battleground for lots of reasons. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. We'll specifically focus on this Battle of Armageddon, as it's sometimes called. There's a lot of misunderstanding about it. We'll get into that. And and, uh, your background for that will be Daniel 11. You read Daniel 11 when you get a chance. It'll be the meeting after next. In other words, not next time we'll take chapter 17 and 18, Babylon. The next chapter will be chapter 19. We'll get into this famed Battle of Armageddon at that time. Meanwhile, we're set up for the seventh bowl here, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl unto the air. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. This is the last sphere of Satan's influence. What is this? Where is this bowl poured out upon? Unto the air. Strange. 
Does it mean the atmosphere that we breathe? Maybe, and maybe not. Maybe it means something else. You remember his, one of Satan's titles in Ephesians 2, verse 2? He is the prince of the power of the air, whatever that means. And I believe whatever that means, that's what being, it's being poured out upon. We know that he rules in high places, Ephesians 6.12, in the heavenlies, in Ephesians 1.20, Now, several people notice when it says here, it is done, you say, gee, I thought it was done on the cross. The last thing Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished. That's not exactly what the text says. That's the way it's translated. What the text says is, tetelestai. That was something you wrote when you, when you were uh, um, convicted of a crime and you had a debt to society. You, those in the Greek and Roman days, you actually had a certificate of debt. A debt instrument was drawn up and you owed society, say, five years for whatever it was you did. So you had that debt to pay. And when you went to prison, the, the jailer kept that. And every time you served a year, you got credit on your debt. And when you finally finished your sentence, he would release you and he would give you your certificate of debt and he'd write across it, paid in full, to Telestai. Now, if you were served two years of your sentence and escaped, had three years left, guess who paid it? He did. That's why he got so shook when all the jail was open, the Philippian jail in Philippi, and, and, Paul, and he thought they all escaped. And Paul said, hey, don't, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And they, they blew him away, and he, he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. He only saved his life, saved his eternity. But um, the point is, Jesus Christ on the cross, last words recorded in the Greek, in the text, is tetelestai, paid in full. Is it really done? Is it finished? Not really. It's paid for. Don't misunderstand me. But what is yet to take place is them taking possession of that which he purchased. And that's what the seventh sealed book is all about, the book of Revelation. And that's what finally climaxes with God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Notice they're bowls. They're very specific measured. It's specifically uh, scheduled. It's specifically measured. Horrible though it is, it's, it's uh, limited and will be done. And when it's finally done, it says here, a voice comes out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. What a relief. And this is the last reference to the temple. It was mentioned six times during these bowls of wrath. Verse 18, there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake. Such was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And we could go through a whole bunch of references on earthquakes, but I'll spare you that in the interest of time. And um, verse 19, a great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We'll be talking more about that uh, uh, shortly. Uh, next time, the Babylon. It was introduced in, four, in chapter 14, verse 8. We have two full chapters dealing with this. But no, it's not just Babel. It says the cities of the nations fell. There's something evil about cities. I know many of us romanticize certain cities. I don't happen to be one of these that do, but many people romanticize Paris, New York, whatever. They say, really, though, God made the country, man made the cities. And it's in the cities that we see the corruption, the graft, the buying and selling of justice, the deification of money, the exaltation of lust, and the ex uh, uh, exploitation of the masses in their lightness and ignorance and what have you. Now, cities before the throne of God are symptomatic of evil. The bigger the city, the bigger the problems. But not everybody can move to Idaho, so that's fine. Let's let them stay there. I don't want, I don't want to sell that too hard. We've got enough problems here. Verse 20. And every, <laughs> and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. 
Haggai 2 and Jeremiah 4 has similar passages. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, and every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now we see hail mentioned in Job 38 and Jeremiah 4. When he says it's about the weight of a talent, you know, if you get hail the size of a golf ball, you've got big problems. You start getting them three or four inches in diameter as they did in Texas here, what, some months ago. Uh, that's big, big problems. Well, let me tell you how much a talent is. It's anywhere from 50 to 140 pounds. A Greek talent was about 86 pounds. The Hebrew talent for the measurement of silver was 110 pounds Troy weight, about 96 of Vortepoix. Uh, other, for other things, non-silver, it was 100, about 135 pounds. The Babylonian talent was slightly heavier. The Attic talent was about 57 pounds, the lightest of the bunch. But talent, you get hailstones that big, they don't have to make any, whatever they are, that, that, that's a big thunk, and that, that can be a little rough. Josephus records that the Roman catapults threw stones the weight of a talent into Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when Titus leveled the city. You might also be interested to know that in nuclear effects at the, uh, at the weapons test in the Pacific, that among the various peculiar phenomenons they discovered, that the ships that they had there to, that were the token targets uh, were damaged in large measure by hail. By hail. See, the, the uh, currents, vertical currents, recycle and they grow and before they land, and uh, uh, that was a major part of the damage. Uh, most of you read about the, you know, the, the, the thermal and, and radioactive damage, that's obviously very paramount, but there's also an enormous, all kinds of other effects, and hail being among those, in, as just a footnote. It fascinates me, here we are with the climax, it is done, the final big drop. What are these guys doing? They're blaspheming God because of the plague of hail, right? What was the Old Testament penalty in the Torah for blasphemy? Stoning. What does God do to these guys? Stones them. And I don't think that's an accident. That's not, not being cute or flippant here. I really believe that that, that is part of God's design. And um, that's part of it. We've got, been through some heavy stuff. There's no way to make chapters 14, 15, and 16 sort of light and easy. It's, it's the wrath of God poured out on, on man. And we talked about wrath last time to some extent. But I want you to notice that these judgments are not our blessed hope. Titus 2.13 is the verse you should carry away from you so you can sleep tonight. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is not really about bowls of judgment and, and what have you. Yes, they are coming. Yes, they are disclosed. What it's really about is the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it interests me as you read articles in various magazines, everybody's concerned about the population of earth. There's something that should concern us much more, and that's the population of hell. And what you and I are in the business of doing is trying to reduce the population of hell by letting people realize that these things that are coming are avoidable. Avoidable. That is before they come. And uh, judgment, and the other lesson we go, if you study this carefully, and I won't spend a lot of time summarizing here, but judgment cannot produce repentance. It never was intended to. God changes hearts through His grace and His mercy. Now this whole book, including chapters 14, 15, and 16, were sent to the seven churches. Why? Are those seven churches involved in what's going on here? No. It was given to them and thus to us. Why? To change our lives right now. 
So we're, I, I, I don't want to um, oversell this in the sense that, gee, these things are about to happen the day after tomorrow. That would be misleading. If for no other reason than for all the reasons we've talked about and others that will come, uh, the church is in a unique position in having explicit commitments by the Lord Jesus Christ that will be removed before these times, not just from these judgments, but from the times of those judgments, so that we don't face these directly, except to the extent they represent that ultimate, uh, that you know, uh, gets rid of universalism. God is going to intervene. He's going to put a ribbon on the whole thing, ultimately. And from all the evidences we see, that is not far away. That is not far away. Because we see all kinds of things that are going to occur in the 70th week of Daniel getting ready to happen. Now, we don't enter the 70th week of Daniel, fine. But as you see the 70th week of Daniel positioned in Babylon, in Magog, in Europe, in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they prepare the temple, you make your list. You see these things starting to take place. You know the 70th week of Daniel is on the horizon. Yes, it might be 10, 20 years away, whatever. Fine. That's not far. And that's exciting. God is getting ready to wrap it up. And you and I should be grateful for every day that he tarries. You say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Boy, come soon as possible. Indeed. I don't know how you feel. I feel the same way. Sooner the better. And yet... Every day that goes by is a day that you and I can learn to love him a little more. You and I can find out a little better what he would have of us in response. Gives us another opportunity to be responsive to his priorities in our lives. We're all ready to rush home and go through our little checklist of the nightmares we face tomorrow and this bill's paid and calls on all these things we've got to do. And those certainly have to be done. And yet, hopefully... Tomorrow's a day when we can stop and say, wait a minute, what is his priorities? It's exciting that we worship a living God, a person. You see him anguish over sin. You also see him rejoice. We see him rejoice. The concept that your behavior can please or displease the God of the universe is a staggering idea. And you and I have an opportunity tonight and tomorrow and as the week unfolds to actually bring... I started to say pleasure, I'm not sure that's the right theological word, but in any case, pleasure to the God of the universe by being, by being obedient to his desires in our life. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Next time we'll study the mystery of Babylon. Is Babylon literal on the banks of the Euphrates? It seems so, and yet is Babylon Rome? Is it Rome or is it in Iraq? What is it all about? Next time. It's by our hearts. Oh, Father, we, we thank you, Father, for the extremes that you've gone to that we might be delivered of these plagues and, and, uh, and your wrath that is scheduled to be poured out upon the earth. We thank you, Father, that you have provided a redemption for each of us in Jesus Christ. And further, we thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. The very fact that we're together here tonight, Father, we thank you, for we know that in your kingdom there are no coincidences, and that we're brought together tonight to behold your word. And we pray, Father, that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate to each of us that which you would have of us in response to these things. We thank you, Father, that we are indeed members of your body, of the church, the mystical 
body of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And, Father, we would just pray that you would equip us for the days ahead, that we might be more fruitful in declaring these things to a dying and hurting world. So, Father, we just come before you in gratitude for having delivered us and provided such a great salvation to us. But we also, Father, pray that you would help us to be more responsive to your will in our lives. For we commit ourselves this night into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Mashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.